Hello and welcome to today's ResiCast. We're talking about climate change and I'm joined by Asif Din, who's the Sustainability Director for Perkins & Will, Global Architecture Design Practice, and Mitch Cook, who's the Director of Sustainability Consultancy GreenGage, that work across the built environment, advising companies both corporately and across their property assets. So Mitch, the climate emergency that was voted on a few weeks ago by REBA, the Royal Institute of British Architects. Is that is it an emergency and, and, and are we doing enough actually to combat things? I think the short answer is uh, yes, it is an emergency and no, we're not doing enough. And what, you know, what should we be doing? I mean, uh, I mean it, we talk about a lot in the industry about sustainability. You have reports coming out left, right and centre and all sorts of standards and benchmarks. And, you know, surely we've got enough standards and benchmarks... Uh, I think we probably do, but the reality is is that we're still not doing enough. Um, I don't want to go into the science behind it, but um, it's well known that we're not doing enough to meet the minimum changes to keep us within a tolerable level of temperature change. Um, the thing I would say in my experience is that I don't think teams go far enough in understanding what they should do in design. So, um, Asif, it, it seems like he's having a bit of a pop at you uh, as the architect in the room for not being ambitious enough in your designs. Is that is that the case? Is it are the architects to blame? Um, to a certain degree, yes. I think I'll take it on my shoulders that architects are to blame to a certain degree because architects generally have been, you know, sort of like our clients say that, you know, sort of like we want X, Y and Z and we try to give it to them to a certain degree, but that has to be balanced. And... Uh, Yes, it is a climate emergency, and yes, we've got to change the way that we actually advise clients. Uh, and what does that mean in practice? Because it, it's very easy to sit here with your broad shoulders and say, we need to change. What, what does that actually look like, particularly in, if you're building high-density residential schemes in, in urban environments? Surely there's only so much you can do. I think there is, um, yeah, there is only so much you can do. That's true, but there's also a range of stuff that you can do or a range of stuff that you can present to the client to say that in this way we can make your building more robust. And what sort of things are there? What, what are some of the, the open goals that aren't being shot at? Well, the standard one is insulation. The most boring one, effectively, is to make sure that your buildings are properly insulated and airtight. And, and Sorry. It's just to reduce the amount of energy that they actually consume in operation. I mean, that, that seems to be the obvious one, Mitch, uh, Mitch Cook, because people talk a lot, don't they, around um, how much we need to spend on, on cooling and, and heating. But actually, if we just use a little bit less, then you don't need to do as much. I think that's probably true. I think we should go back to basics in terms of energy use and cooling. But I think that, that there's a level of expectation on things that we don't really need. So I'll give an example we don't really need air conditioning in residential homes. I think that's a sales-driven uh, expectation, uh, and it's uh, something which, is, which isn't necessarily something that, that was historically built. No, absolutely. But, you know, sort of like you look at the biggest growth area in the UK market at the moment, and the biggest growth area for air conditioning is residential, and it's worrying. But in, but in high-rise developments, don't you need it? Because, I mean, the, 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 the way that heat tends to permeate through those sorts of developments when you're building you know, 20, 30 stories. In all the discussions I've had with architects and um, mechanical engineers and building physicists, the answer is no, you don't. You can design for minimising energy for cooling. You can design a building to get natural ventilation. Often, the aesthetic takes over. 
I disagree with the aesthetic, actually. To be honest, I don't think it's really about the aesthetic. I think it's what, to a certain degree, what the plot demands in terms of what a developer wants. It's quite standard sort of development is effectively how many flats can you get around a core? Yes, but you look, you walk around uh, a number of schemes in London and they're paved with glazing. That is an aesthetic that's driven the design. So, so basically somebody comes to the table and says, I want a glass-wrapped building. Architects will say, yes, of course you can have your glass-wrapped building, but we've then got to fill it with cooling to make it livable. I think we've all worked on projects where the, the, a design has driven uh, what the building looks like and then functionality has to follow on from that. So are you saying, Mitch Cook, that, that in such a scenario we need to simply for example, reduce glazing and, and be more honest about the, f- the effect it has on heat? Well, if you look at something like the London plan, that has driven the reduction in glazing. But what we're not seeing across the UK is, some, is, is development and residential development, particularly following that standard. So I think what we as a design community need to do is find a way of working together so it's not driven by a client's expectation, what it looks like, or a design expectation. So, Asif Din, how, how does that work in practice then? It, when, you're, when you have a developer that comes to you that says, we want a big, huge, uh, extravagant glass wrap building, what, what scope do you have to say, no, sir, that's a bad idea, do it like this? Uh, we, we, we would strongly advise against it, and we just had to act as effectively experts in the area, and we'll show them effectively building modelling, other things, making sure that they understand that to shade their building properly, is a good thing, and it will reduce the amount of energy that actual the building actually consumes. And it's you've the got same quite a lot of research from the states that you use as a practice, don't you? Well, we do have lots of research from the states, but we also have lots of research from the UK as well in terms of overheating. It's, um, in, in matter of fact, we you know sort of like we tend to use the research that comes out of our Canada office because it's more aligned to what we do in the UK than okay. than we do than to other parts of the US. And and so how do we break the mould that, that Mitch described, how do we create better alignment so that there's a bit more common sense thinking occurring? The radical thing is probably to actually shake up the planning system because, as a matter of fact, the aesthetics is driven by something that you've decided early on that you then submit to planning and you're locked into. If, so, you, if you have a performance-based planning system, a scientific target planning system in that way, we can achieve a lot more. And, and in plain English, Mitch Cook, what does that actually mean? So you talked a little about the London plan, which is the, the Mayor of London's policy framework for London. But what does that actually say around glazing? What, what, what does it actually... Well, there's, a, uh, there's a, an energy efficiency target. There's a um, cooling hierarchy. So there's a lot in there that, that drives the design process to think about energy use, both in heating but more importantly and into the future, about cooling. Uh, I think London does lead the way, and let's not be too London-centric. I think that uh, policies are paving the way for other areas to take these ideas on board. And what I would say is I think that our second capital and third capital and elsewhere in the UK are lagging some way behind. But there's a hell of a lot of high-rise development occurring, isn't there, now in Birmingham and Manchester particularly, lots and lots of residential going up. And lots of quite poor stuff that, that has gone up over the last 10 years, I suspect, as well. Yes, it has long-term legacy, unfortunately. It's sort of like, you know, sort of like you have a number of years 
that those buildings are going to be in operation. We have to be more strict, effectively, on how we design now because that will be the legacy in the future that, you know, will be difficult to manage. But I suppose playing devil's advocate with some of this stuff, because what we're talking essentially about is an element of cost that's going to be layered on to the investors and developers. Would it not be better pooling that finance and just decarbonizing the grid a little bit quicker? And then it arguably doesn't matter how much we use. I would say that we need not just one uh, pool of money. I think we need to think about how that money's spent across the board. So yes, it might be driving design, but it might be about green finance. It might be about decarbonisation. But uh, I don't think we can stand still and think about one solution. We got to work across the board. So if there's one uh, one thing that that you'd like to see, whoever our next prime minister slash housing minister um, bring in. What would you say on the planning side? What, what one thing would make a, a sizable difference? Uh, I would probably say that performance-based uh, taxation. So if you build a rubbishly performing building, you'll be taxed more heavily than if you, if you produce. It's sort of like, it goes back to the zero, the, zero. You is who? The developer, the owner, the occupier? Who, who pays this tax? I, I would actually say the developer as the first point of call, but also in terms of, in terms of retrofit, because you've got to imagine that we've got a lot of housing out there that will actually be, still be there for a good few years to come. It also has to apply to, um, in terms of retrofitting, in terms of materials, so you know, sort of like do away with the VAT, and also probably to do something with the stamp duty mechanism. And in what sense, in terms of giving people some kind of break if they're upgrading? Well, you know, sort of like you look at sort of like what people buy houses for and it's still location. You know, we're we're talking single-digit percentages if they could go for an A-rated house, you know, sort of an EPC of A compared to an EPC of E. I guess people do. I mean, Mitch Cook, do people trust these ratings really anymore? I I don't think people really look at them if we think about the... When hips were largely derided at the time. And prior to that, there was a mechanism for understanding how sustainable a home was, and that got kicked into the long grass because it seemed to be stopping new homes being built. Um, And actually, nobody stood up to say it was a good thing. So I don't think people look at a home's performance... I think what uh, will change the way that people think about a home is when there is a more renting society and we move away from uh, purchasing your own home as the only option of of future accommodation. I think the younger generations see the flexibility of build-to-rent and a number of our clients are improving their sustainability performance because it's been demanded from the people who live in those apartments. And, and Asif Din, I mean, it's a good point that Mitch makes in terms of well-being and, and the broader uh, sustainability agenda outside of, of energy use. What what do you think some of the tangibles there are? So what are things that we can design into master plans or, or, or developments to, 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 to prioritise well-being? Um, amenity, good connectivity. Um, there's a range of different bits of bits that you could actually add within developments um but i think it's important you know to, what we're trying to do is cr- try to create healthy homes because it's not just shoving a gym in the basement which again some people are shoving a gym in the basement a couple of running machines and calling that well-being and then you've got people 
you know, doing it properly. Companies like Moda Living that are that have got you know a serious commitment to health and well-being with an app and and a proper focused strategy that that delivers mental health checks and delivers proper fitness and nutrition advice. And and for me, it, it strikes me that it's when you bring all of those different things together that you can make a real difference. You know, as a practice, we have a precautionary list that effectively identifies 40 or so different substances which are harmful to human health that we actually design out of our buildings. So toxic materials in, in the fabric? In the fabric, the off-gas, that, you know, sort of like... They're, they're not on anybody's sort of like, you know... Uh, list in terms of building control or anything, but we do that. We we, we make sure that we do risk what we design. And I think so. I can say I'd add to. It. I think that's a very good thing. Um, obviously, the other aspects that come around well-being in, in design are things like good daylighting, or the um, seeing vegetation in where you live and your home and common areas. So they call it biophilia, but essentially it's vegetation. Um, so good daylighting, good internal um, air quality. So these are things you can design in. But I think that the point you made, that developers are also seeing um, events and curating and getting people together as part of their health and well-being, including mental health, well-being agenda. And I think that is probably not yet fully understood. And, and is it simply about stuff at the luxury end? I and mean, we've talked a lot about aircon and, and high-rise but you know these aren't really things that people at the lower end of the spectrum tend to worry about but you mitch with with green gauge have worked with metropolitan at, at clapham park one of the biggest regeneration projects in the south um what were some of the what were some of the priorities there in, in obviously creating a sustainable place for one of the largest housing associations. So that's a good example of where both the buildings were designed for sustainable measures, so they're easy to heat, so you're taking people out of fuel poverty, and what that means is that people are spending less money, um, the less money in their pocket is going to spend is going to heat their homes or cool their homes. But actually the, the bit about Clapham Park that worked really well was the green infrastructure, the vegetation that connected the spaces together. So places that were designed to get people to mix, to get people to, to address loneliness. So places that were also designed for people to walk. So you're helping people become more active and you're addressing things like obesity and heart disease. But you're also creating links to communities that are outside the metropolitan the Clapham Park. So you're encouraging people to come into Clapham Park. So there's no barriers about regeneration and, and as if in that it's a big issue isn't it in terms of making places walkable particularly when you're you're faced with the the legacy of roads and roads and roundabouts and a few more roads and it's something that you've worked on recently as a practice with mepc at milton park isn't it in terms of reshaping that um that whole part of didcot into something that's a bit more modern Yes, well, you know, sort of like it's not good enough just to design a good ecological building. You know, sort of like when you consider your actual environmental footprint, it's probably a third, 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 a third transport, a third the building, a third food. You have to consider all three you know, as a holistic vision rather than just a single part of it. And, and, and who pays for this stuff? Is it, does it all end up in the pockets of, of consumers? Because we're going to have these buildings that are brilliantly green with all this biophilia and all of this well-being people surely just want a cheap house don't they uh, well you know sort of like we're not talking huge amounts of money we are talking two three 
up to about five or seven percent for really, you know, sort of like, you know, in terms of, say, building rates compared to a passive house, talking about five percent. We're not talking huge amounts, but over the whole life cycle of a building, it's easily paybackable. And, and that, you think, could be paid back if we've got more long-term institutional investment there? Well, you know, sort of like, as Mitch says, if, if it is going towards a more of a rental market, then a matter of fact, the owner has a long-term asset and it has more interest in actually investing in that asset early on that then they recoup over the lifespan. Uh, the traditional developer model, that's a harder sell because they want to sell it on, but they're not really going to get that benefit back because the person that they're selling it to will get that benefit throughout the building so, life. So Mitch Cook, do you think then this needs to be led by housing associations, by some of the institutional investors that are able to take that 10, 20-year play? I, I, I think they do. I think what's happening is that those new players in the market, they are changing and shaking it up. And I think the traditional house builders are now looking at themselves and thinking, well, we better do something about this because if we don't, do it we'll lose our business model and who's impressing you at the minute who, who's doing a good job who can we who can we applaud so you talked about Moda. i think they're very good we talk we're working with the collective we're working with other similar or uh, residential developments we're we're also seeing some good initiatives come through barclay chris nicholson and the volume house builders that traditionally maybe didn't think as strongly about green infrastructure and good landscaping and and detailing as they do now and i think actually they realise that there's a discerning purchaser out there who who can who has a choice. And when when it comes to, I mean, you, you talk briefly about passive house, and these mm. things are often rolled out, aren't they, in kind of glossy newspaper supplements and award ceremonies? Wouldn't it be fantastic if we all had a, a house like this that made you coffee in the morning and switched the TV on? These things still, for many people, live in this little pocket of novelty. Do you think, what, what, is, what needs to happen to bring it out of the, the novelty part of the world into reality? Um, the way that building regs has been going over, the, say, last, I don't know, probably 10, 15 years, is that we're more and more going towards fabric first. So what, what does that mean in plain English? Explain it, for it, a... In terms of fabric first, you invest in the, with fabric, so more insulation, better air tightness, you, you save energy. Now, the natural end goal for that, effectively, is passive house. And it's not that far away. It's just that we've got to push a little bit further to get to that point. And once you push to that point, then certain other savings come out. You do not have to put in a standardised heating system, for example. But how do you deal with things? You mentioned air pollution. You mentioned toxic materials. Can you do all these things about using toxic materials? Can you do all these things whilst also filtering the air properly? Yes, as a matter of fact, part of passive, passive house sort of design is putting a whole house ventilation system in with filters. But how so, does that work without consuming tons of energy? Uh, Maybe we haven't got time for that right no, well, now. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of technical, you know, but, but passive house has a strict uh, set of rules, effectively, to govern that, to make sure that you're not using too much energy for the ventilation system. And, you know, sort of like, yes... Whole house ventilation systems have been put in and misused so far in this country because they've been put into non-airtight buildings where they don't provide any benefit. You need the airtightness to actually make them work. So properly. it's like when you walk down Oxford Street and you see all these shops with the doors wide open and the aircon right up, as, as you know, as we often have during the summer. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and you know, one of the one of the crazy things that 
you just you know you just think why is this happening um i mean in in terms of that that point on on air quality mitch have we have we kind of reached that moment it, it seems some would suggest that we we're due perhaps a tobacco moment where people go oh crikey maybe we should be doing a little bit more on air quality and that perhaps will happen once people start being sued over it. I think you're probably right. I think the the, the facts that come out of that 65,000 people a year die from poor air quality resulting from transport uh, will make people think. The other thing, I think, is the accessibility of that information that people can get on their phones. So, you, so we work with clients that tell their workers to walk a certain way to avoid the poor air quality within London. So that's a enabled, informed client helping their employees to be more healthy. And, and how do we square that circle, though, given particularly in, in London, Birmingham, Manchester, all of the, the big cities across the UK, you're largely going to be developing residential property next to big roads? I think in the short term you are. I think there is a transition away from car ownership and it being fossil fuel led. So if you look at all the major players in car manufacturers, they've all pledged to only sell electric cars from 2030 and if not before that i think there is a shift away from the traditional cars and the way that they use fossil fuels you know even things like the ultra low emission zone that's coming is changing behavior yeah and and um you know as, as we sort of conclude asif asif um what do you think the future holds and over the next five ten years is, is you know we sort of stare some of these targets in the face how realistic is it that we're going to meet the 2030 targets that have been set or even you know, the 2050 ones, which look, frankly, um, on another planet? Um, t- 2050 we probably are. 2030 is actually more of a risk, in my opinion. But I've got a feeling that the insurance industry is going to step in effectively and say that we're not going to finance this. We're not going to fund these things unless you prove to us that it will still be around at the end of your mortgage period. So you mean that investment in housing could dry up if the people building the stuff can't prove that it's going to be livable? Well, how are the insurance companies going to actually make their business in terms of pension funds, other bits and pieces? So, you know, sort of like, how, how is the investment actually going to roll in the future? How are people going to make their returns? And if they're not going to make their returns because there's too much risk on poorly designed buildings, then effectively they're going to be the ones that are going to be make, setting the rules. Well, I, 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 mean, I suppose we can look at what's happened with flooding over the last years, can't we, in terms of that being a huge hole in the side of the insurance tanker. And largely, most people would say this is a result of bad design by people not realising how much concrete they've put down and having no runoff, having no real planning for, for, for sorting out what are obviously on many cases quite fundamental engineering issues. But no one seems to have to take liability for those sorts of problems, do they? No, I think that development and developers generally have been caught out a little bit in terms of the increase in flooding and flood risk as a result of climate change. So we're looking at schemes now, and we're working on the Elephant and Castle, for example, where a new breach model uh, came out a couple of years ago that essentially changed the way flooding is being dealt with on that site. Now it's been designed in and it's, it's, it's now addressed those issues but it was a shift from a position that wasn't too long ago um, fully understood and engineered out. And, and, and finally then, Asif, what, um, 
what would you like to see the industry do? What what would you like to see happen in client meetings going forward? You know, what what should what should developers of housing be saying? What should their starting point be on energy? Um, and on well, not just energy, but on, on all of these things that we're discussing. I, th- I think they have to seriously consider how long do they want this asset to last. And as soon as you do that, then you can actually future model. Fantastic. So thanks very much to Asif Din from Perkins and & Will and to Mitch Cook from Green Gauge. This has been a Resi podcast. And if you'd like to attend Resi between the 11th and the 13th of September, please head to resiconference.com or keep looking at Property Week for the latest updates. Thanks very much.